Hello, St Andrews, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our King and that you promise your kingdom will never fall. And you promise your kingdom is a kingdom of grace because of the Lord Jesus, that we are welcomed in because of his sacrifice for us. We thank you, Father, that as other kingdoms rise and fall, yours will remain. What began with a small rain there in Jerusalem has spread to the very ends of the earth. And so we praise you, Father, for it. And we pray now as we hear your word that we will realise that we are hearing the word of our King, that we would be humble as we listen that we would listen with a view to trusting you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please have Daniel chapter 2 open in front of you as we continue this uh, book together. Daniel chapter 2, and there was an outline in the email. If you find that helpful, it's well worth having that with you to uh, jot down notes. And there's a little link uh, for that outline uh, appearing on the YouTube stream just now. Let me begin with this quote. There was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Any more than a whisper and it would vanish. It was so fragile and I fear that it will not survive the winter. They're the words of Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, or at least in the movie Gladiator. And his dream is of the city of Rome, the city at the heart of the mighty Roman Empire, a place that he saw as being so good and so strong and so sure, and yet it seems so fragile. In Daniel 2, we speak of dreams just like this, dreams of things that seem so big and strong and sure and yet turn out to be fragile and temporary. And we will also speak of dreams that are, well, on appearance so small and yet are growing and growing and will be forever. <laughs> as we speak of dreams, we will again speak of cities as we did last week. Uh, yes, even Rome, uh, Marcus Aurelius's city will get a mention, but our focus will again be on those two cities that we saw in Daniel chapter 1. You remember them? Babylon and Jerusalem, two very different cities. Uh, Babylon, where this book is said, a city formed in the sands of Babel. Uh, you remember we saw it there in Genesis 11 as humanity tried to build a tower as high as heaven, build a city where God was built out of the program, where there was no need or want of God, a place of human self-rule. And then also the city of Jerusalem, a city built on God's promise. His promise to dwell with his people in that city, to be their king and to be their king forever. These are the two cities before us. And if you were here last week, as we heard Daniel chapter one together, if you're here as part of the live stream, you would have seen that the city of Jerusalem has fallen to the hands of Babylon. The city has been sacked and the exiles are now leaving Jerusalem for Babylon, including Daniel, the namesake of this book. And the question that hangs in the air in these early chapters, and it will be with us throughout the book, is this. Is it actually possible to keep holding on to bold and hopeful faith that God is king in a city that is set against God and set against his people trusting him? Is it actually possible to keep that faith? And we ask that question not just in the context of this book of Daniel and for the Israelites leaving into exile in Babylon. It's our question too. In a city much like Babel, the city of Sydney, a city of power and purpose and noise, a city that, well, ultimately feels it has no need or want of God, a city happy to self-rule. Can you hold on to faith that God is king in a city like this, in a world like this, without actually denying the reality of the place? 
Can you hold on to faith in God when uh, those opposed to him seem stronger and more lasting? Or is it in the end, well, just another dream? That's what we have before us as we look at Daniel chapter 2. And as we start Daniel 2, we see it does start with a dream. You see there verse 1? In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And Nebuchadnezzar by this stage is the powerful ruler of Babylon. It's becoming the wonder of the world as it was known. He'd essentially conquered the known world. Uh, He was feared by all around him. He was incredibly popular within the empire. He was completely secure on his throne and yet it seems just a bad night's sleep and he is shaken to his core. Nebuchadnezzar, we read in the history books, was a deeply religious man. He worshipped the idols, the false gods of Babylon, Marduk and Nabu. Uh, He figured that uh, when you dreamed at night, if you had a dream, it was the gods communicating a message to you. And so he was desperate to know about this message. And for such moments, you see there verse 2, he'd established a college of wise people of all shapes and sizes to help him answer these messages, to help him interpret the message. Uh, These were the people, if you remember from Daniel chapter 1, that had been put through three years of training, including Daniel and his cohorts. They were the wise men of of Babylon who were called upon at such moments. In, In fact, we're told that Babylon had dream manuals for just such a moment. And so, verse 3, the king summons the wise men. Now, I have a dream, he says. Uh, but, but don't think Martin Luther King type, I have a dream. This is a fearful dream for Nebuchadnezzar and the empire. Uh, verse 4, the wise men answer, well, okay, and they're used to this. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. That's how it works. We'll get out the manual. You can almost picture them flicking through the dream manual, wondering which section it will come from. But verse 5, the king is disturbed at this point by the dream and grows so frustrated and so fearful and so cynical, it seems, of these wise men, that they're just going to tell him what he wants to hear because they, they exist at his largesse. They, they feed off his table. They're just going to say, you're great king. He doesn't want to hear that. He wants to hear the truth. He says, unless you can tell me what the dream is as well as what it means, I'm not going to hear you. And then he says this, the threat uh, gets very big. He says, if you can't tell me what the dream is and what it means, then I'm going to rip you to pieces and I'm going to rip your houses to pieces. Uh, You know, that escalated very quickly, didn't it? Uh, From just a little dream exercise to suddenly your whole life depends on it. The stakes are huge for the wise men and the stakes are huge for the king, it seems. He is desperate to know about this dream. What does the future hold for him as king? And so verses 10 and 11, with more toing and froing going, going on, the wise men eventually plead, what the king, do you see there, verse 11, what the king asks is, is too difficult. We can't do this. No, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And then this line, do you see there, they do not live among humans. I reckon in this one line, verse 11, we, we have the bankruptcy of the whole pagan worldview, the whole secular worldview, human religion or human self-rule. In the end, those things have no power over the future, they can't control it and they have no grasp or understanding of what the future may hold. Uh, You see that with Nebuchadnezzar in that first verse. That's what disturbs him so much. For all his power, for all his control over the known world, he cannot 
tell himself or plan what the future will hold. He, he's like a, he's living in the dark. He's living on instinct. He's bouncing around like some, some person stumbling around in a house at night. He has no idea what's happening. And now the wise men are just as much in the dark. There's nothing in the manual about this. And if there is a God, it seems they think he's distant and unknowable and he doesn't speak. What help are the gods? And I reckon in this, verse 11, you see something of the Bible's critique of even our 21st century humanism and secularism and even paganism and human religions. Uh, Peter Moore, in his book, uh, Disarming the Secular Gods, describes the, the, the humanist worldview by using a picture of a, apparently an impressive sunken garden that you can find outside the, the rare book library at Yale University. This is what the garden looks like. It's, it's meant, to, meant to be a garden that pictures what our universe looks like from the humanist <coughs> worldview. Uh, it says in one corner of the garden, uh, there's a large marble pyramid standing in the corner, symbolising time. That's part of the universe, time. And then in another corner, there's this huge sort of donut-shaped structure and standing on its side, and that symbolises energy. The universe is full of energy. And then in the third corner is a huge die perched on the tip as if it's ready to topple anyway, but no one knows which way it's going to topple. And that's a symbol of the chance that dictates the future in the universe. And what Moore says in his book is he says, this perfectly captures the worldview of the modern humanist. A self-existing universe consisting of, well, energy and time and chance. It's a world of, well, who knows, whatever may come. It reminds me of uh, the Shakespeare quote when he says that life in the end is, is like a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is, is that what the universe is like? For all our power, for all our intellect, we, we can't control the future. Now, the picture of our secular wisdom from Babel is of a world, and this is our world, isn't it? Full of dreams about the future, full of plans about the future. We talk about them a lot at, at a, a national level and at a personal level, but we're actually blind to what lies ahead of us, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And so we pick up the story again at verse 12. The king by this stage has run out of patience, having had the wise men say, we can't help you. And so he follows through on his threat. All these freeloaders have to die. I'll just get new ones. And so Daniel and his friends who are part of this wise man cohort, because they did the three-year degree, they're sent for as well. And at this point, we read that Daniel pleads first with the commander and then directly with the king for, for a little bit more time to, to be able to understand the dream and to interpret it for him. And he's given time. And here in what follows next, I think, is you see the difference between the wisdom of Babel, the wisdom of our world, and the wisdom of Jerusalem, the wisdom of God's people. Here is the wisdom that comes from someone, as we saw last week with Daniel, who knows that there is a God who is king and remains king, that he is present, that he is working for our good and that he will reign forever. What do you do when that's the way you understand the world, when you know that is true? What's the wise response to a being troubled in the world, having a crisis like Daniel and his friends have before them in a world like this? Do you see their response, verse 17? They bow the knee before the king of heaven and they plead for mercy. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. Knowing where the power is, knowing who's, who writes the pages of the future and asking him for mercy. 
Uh, we know that because we know God is king. But how often, though, we, when we think about our own future, we grasp at the, the shadowy darkness of the future as if we live in Babel, as if I am king and I have to fix it. That, the Bible says, that's foolishness. And so these four men, wisely, they bow down and they pray for mercy. And during the night, God is true to his character. He is merciful and God makes the mystery of the king clear to Daniel. That's God's wisdom. It's his to give. He must reveal it. It doesn't come by more experience in this world or more knowledge or more manuals or anything like that. This is God's to reveal. And so do you see the response? He gets the praise. Uh, verse 20 to 23, it's a, a brilliant little section where, where Daniel, having woken, having received this uh, revelation, then praises God, the, the, the one whose name will be praised forever, he says. And he's, we're told why. This is what our God is like. This is what we can be sure of. He is king of heaven and that rules earth. He is powerful and he is wise. He's in charge of all the seasons of, that will come in the future. Even the season that we're in as a world in 2020, as, as tricky and complex and fearful as it is, he's in charge of it. And he's in charge of governments. And he knows the things that are hidden that we'd love to know but, but can't. He knows them and we can trust him with them because he, he's a good king. And it is by his light that he will lead us, we're told. That's Daniel's wise praise of the God who is king. There is a God, he says, who knows and orders history. We can trust that. And he knows the rise and fall of the kings because that's in his jurisdiction. And his own kingdom, it'll never fall. It'll last forever. And so the commander takes Daniel to the king and says, we've found one who can unveil the mystery. And the king, you can imagine his excitement in this moment. Are you really able to tell me the future? Uh, you see Daniel's reply, it's wonderful. No wise man can explain to the king the mystery that he's asked about. This isn't in my grasp. But there is a God in heaven who reveals such mysteries. There's a God in heaven who writes the pages of history. The God in heaven alone who, who reveals the things that are to come. That's what Daniel tells the king. And now what he does is he unveils a dream that either Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten or he refused to tell the wise men. It's a dream of an awesome statue, we're told, verse 31 head of uh, gold, pure gold, and chest and arms of silver, and belly and thigh of bronze, and legs of iron, and feet of clay. It's, it's an incredible statue made of these different parts. Uh, the picture, as we'll see in a moment, is of a series of kingdoms, one after another after another, of different sorts. Uh, and yet, ultimately, no, no matter how strong they are, they are in the end, unstable and temporary, but, but it's not their fragility that causes their downfall. Do you see what causes it? Verse 34. Then a rock cut out, not by human hand, but cut out of a mountain, not by human, this isn't a human kingdom, tiny little rock is picked up and it is hurled at this statue and it hits the feet of clay and it shatters them and then the whole statue comes crumbling down, all the bits, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay shatters into pieces and is blown away by the wind like chaff and, and, and as if never to be seen again. But the rock, this little rock that was thrown at this awesome statue, it grows from a little rock into a mountain and that mountain will grow so large that it will cover all the earth. That's the dream. 
Imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying, that's it. That's what I saw. And then we're told comes the interpretation again from God. This is God telling Nebuchadnezzar about the future. And here's what Daniel says to the king. He says to him, the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, has put you in this place. You are king because he's handed you that role. We saw that in Daniel 1, remember? You have dominion and power and might and glory. It's all from him. You're in charge of the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And does that, does that uh, job echo something in our minds? And you remember Genesis chapter 1, that, that, that's the job given to Adam and chapter 2 given to Eve together. They are to rule creation, subdue creation, be in charge of it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're just like all the rulers that God has put in charge of creation, all the way back to that first ruler of creation, Adam. You have been given creation to rule over and to care for. It's all been given to you. None of it came from your own hand. You, Nebuchadnezzar, though, are, and here it is, you are the head of gold. That's who you are in the statue. But, and you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar at that point thinking, yes, I am quite impressive. It's not a surprise that I'm the head. But then comes this but after you, and in those words, it's devastating for Nebuchadnezzar. And after you, you're not always going to rule. You're just a placeholder in history. A series of kingdoms are described after him. And uh, by the time we get to the fourth kingdom, we're told that it will rise up so strong, it's like iron and it will smash all that's come before it. And, uh, but for all its power, we're told, it's a whole mix of strength and fragility of unity and disunity, of iron and clay and strength and weakness. It, it won't last. And in the midst of all this rise and fall, we're told the king of heaven will set up another kingdom, not a human kingdom, and it will bring all other pretenders to his throne to an end. And this kingdom will endure forever. These man-made kingdoms are to be rocked and then shattered by the onslaught of this new kingdom that will start so small, it's like a little pebble, little rock. And that rock will grow into a mountain and that mountain will cover the earth. And over time, there's been all sorts of speculation about these four kingdoms. Uh, the most likely chain of events is the first being Babylon, as we're told here, and then the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then finally the Roman Empire. More, more on that in later chapters when that series of kingdoms comes up again. But it is worth saying that what, whatever, wherever we land or which one is which, and there's all sorts of theories, you can find whole books about it, we're told that spending too much time speculating on such things, Jesus says, is to miss the point. To try and speculate about when the end will come, what the final kingdom will be and all of that, Jesus warns, it, 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 trying to guess the sign of the end times is, is, is not the point. <laughs> Truth is, we, are, we who are, and this is us, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are on the edge of eternity as it is. Just know that, says Jesus. Focus on that. See what God is bringing. But what can we, in the end, learn from this dream about our world and about the future? Well, the statue of Daniel shows us a picture of humanity that is increasingly fragile and divided. That's the picture that, that it gets less glorious, less strong as the statue goes on. It's, I think, a biting assessment of the human race and our progress. It flies in the face of the view that as humans, we're, we're always on the up and up, where we're making progress, that the next generation will be better than the last, that we're always improving, getting more smart, more knowledgeable, more wise. All of those things are, well, rubbish. 
the dreams of this world and how many dreams this world mounts up, how many dreams and plans that nations and rulers make and we make even personally, the dreams of this world again and again end in disillusionment or they fall short somehow. The dreams and the plans of this world turn out to have feet of clay. And yet this is the world that as Christians, as those who know that God is king, this is the world we're called to live in. This is the world we're called to hold on to bold and hopeful faith in. It's a world where people uh, do live with no confidence, no certainty, no grasp of the future. They can't because it's not in our grasp. It's hidden. It's uncertain. And when you live in a world like that and you think that you are king rather than God, all that ends up mattering to you is here and now and what you can have here and now because that's all you can see and grasp. It's as one commentator that I read put it. He said this. He said, the human race is like a man in a boat. Uh, We let the winds of desire steer us where it will and we enjoy life however we can. And only if we see land, only if we see some sort of marker would we dare to head for it and to ply our arms to the oars. We Christians, we live in a world that badly needs the dream that will not fail, the sight of land that is solid and sure, a dream that will not disappoint. The only hope for a world like ours is the dream that God offers his world, a dream that will not fall. And here's the thing about that dream, that hope. Do you see what uh, Daniel says to the king at the end of interpreting the dream? Verse 45, he says of this future that God has planned, two words he says about it. It's trustworthy and it's true. This is not the stuff of fancy. This is not the stuff of wishful thinking. This is the solid anchor hope that we have because of God, it is trustworthy and true. Daniel 2 shows us the essential difference between, well, the false gods of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped and the true God, Yahweh, who is on his throne. Daniel's God, the God of heaven, is not distant and not impotent. He's accessible and he's capable. And unlike the gods of Babylon, who the wise men say, don't dwell with, with us, they're nowhere near us. Well, How about this? This is the Christian gospel. How remarkable is this? The very means by which God will make good on this dream is by coming close to his world and dwelling among us. It is as John 1.14 says, he came and set up his tent among us when speaking of Jesus, God's king, our king. Daniel spoke of the words of God's dream sometime in the 6th century BC. That's when he said this before Nebuchadnezzar. Centuries and centuries later, A strange man, John the Baptist, would appear in the wilderness just outside of God's city, Jerusalem, and he would boldly proclaim the news about that dream, the news, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's time. Uh, He spoke of the one who was to come after him, whose sandals he was unfit to even tie, the, the real deal, the king. He spoke of Jesus, who would be God made flesh. God made his dwelling amongst us, the God does live among men. And as Jesus began his ministry after John the Baptist baptised him, you, you know what words he started his ministry with? They're fulfilling this dream that we have in Daniel 2. He simply says, the time has come, it's time. The kingdom of God has arrived. This is the moment. Repent and believe. Do you see how big a moment that is as Jesus begins his ministry? In Jesus Christ, God is hurling the rock of Daniel 2 at the kingdoms of this world as he said he would. 
In Jesus Christ, God has enthroned his true king as Jesus died and then conquered death and he will reign forever, just as he promised. When you see how God's dream is being fulfilled in this world, there's actually little left to say other than, well, praise as Daniel does and as 1 Peter does in our other reading today. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus, through the king, we can know God as Father. That's what this kingdom is all about. Through Jesus, God has brought mercy to this world, a word of forgiveness, a word of new starts, a word of no condemnation. That's what this kingdom is all about. Through Jesus, we are shielded by God's power, whatever comes until that day, until the end. Christian, do you know what you're in on as part of this kingdom? Do you see the dream that God has revealed to his world in his son? Is that still clear in your mind? Do you hold on to it with bold and hopeful faith or, or have other dreams got in the way? Well, if so, then know this of your future again. Know this of your hope. It is as 1 Peter says, the prophets knew it was coming. Prophets like Daniel, they, they searched for the details. They want to know all about it. They wanted to know the moment that Jesus would come and the king would give his life and then take it back up again and his kingdom would reign forever. They, they wanted to know about these things. We're told in 1 Peter, they were our servants preparing this news for us. You and I, we're the blessed ones on the other side of the promise fulfilled. The ones who can look back and see the day that God's kingdom broke into history, that the rock smashed the statue. We are the ones who can look forward and see the day that is coming when God's king, his son, who knows you by name, the king knows you by name and calls you his friend, will be revealed to all. They'll see him for who he is, the first and the last, the living one, the one who is actually king and judge and saviour of this whole world. We are those who can look forward to the day when we see his coming, when that king will come to bring us home. Our world is in need of a dream and we have one. The only one worth believing because it is trustworthy and it is true. Well, let me pray for us. And I'll simply pray by using these words from 1 Timothy 4. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and for this we labour and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Saviour of all, and especially of those who believe. Amen.